All right, we are back, and I'm determined to talk about something that has nothing to do with viruses. And wouldn't you know it, that's leading me into another obituary. In this case, Olivia de Havilland, described as the last great star of Hollywood's golden age. She died on June 26th, age 104. If you're a film buff, you know that Olivia de Havilland had some great performances in some great movies. I think she and Errol Flynn make quite a pair in Robin Hood along with Claude Rains, who always managed to steal uh, steal a bit of every scene he was in. I believe in something like one year, she went from being a uh, 17-year-old kid in a high school uh, play to being in Hollywood, being a, promising in star, being a promising star in Hollywood, no less. She apparently went from a stage performance at the Hollywood Bowl of a Midsummer Night's Dream to being signed with the studios. She was 18, felt like she was jumping off an Olympic diving board with no idea how to dive. The Economist notes that almost as fast as Warner Brothers kept offering her brainless work, she declined it. Each time she turned down a role, her contract was suspended and the days not worked were added to time owed. Olivia de Havilland was pretty infuriated. She took the studios to court in 1943 and she won, as she was sure she would. Henceforth, under the de Havilland Law of 1945, actors were employed for proper calendar terms, and the studio's stranglehold was ended. From the start, Olivia de Havilland wanted to play women who were complex and thoughtful. Winnis noted the best she could hope for was the spirited, wimpled Maid Marian in The Adventures of Robin Hood, and in Gone with the Wind, after pleading with Warner's wife, she went for Melanie Hamilton, dignified, loving, forgiving, rather than the flighty Scarlett O'Hara. She's quite a lady. She avoided marrying her leading men, preferring, it said, to carry on discreetly with several, including Errol Flynn, although that was unconsummated, she insisted, despite their eight films together, and also Jimmy Stewart and John Huston. But she married writers, promptly divorcing them when mutual interest faded. In the 1940s, though ardently liberal, she resigned from the Liberal Citizens Committee to protest against the leadership's pro-Soviet line and she even informed the FBI secretly about them. Those were complex times back then. I know there was a time when the FBI looked askance at you for being prematurely anti-fascist. That came about because it was the Soviet Union that had a break with Nazi Germany after their non-aggression pact. And since it was the pro-Soviet people here in America that they were screaming about that most loudly, they came under suspicion. Anyway, I don't have too much more to say about Olivia de Havilland, except that she was not just another pretty face. You know, and sometimes from the Misery Loves Company uh, viewpoint, <laughs> we like to point out other things going on in the world that, well, compared to that, things here maybe aren't so bad. I guess I started to do that in the last segment, talking about things being less than optimal in Tanzania, but wouldn't you know it, before I was done, it looked as though we're just as bad off here or worse. But as the election looms a few months into the future, here's a place we want to make sure we don't parallel. That place would be Belarus, which just had an election. Yes, an election in Belarus. President Alexander Lukashenko, widely considered to be the last Stalinist ruler in the world. He's also known as Europe's last dictator. He has always sailed to victory in prior elections, which, not surprisingly, are under his total control. But reports leading up to the election on August 9th seem to indicate that he was perhaps a little bit spooked. Apparently, a little-known vlogger named Slarhi Tsikhanowski had sparked an opposition movement by going door-to-door and interviewing ordinary Belarusians about politics and their lives. 
Sikonowski announced his intention to run for president under the campaign slogan, Stop the Cockroach. That came about by the fact that when he interviewed one elderly woman, she said archly, when you see a cockroach in your house, you should grab a shoe and kill it. I mean, obviously Lukashenko was not pleased with that campaign slogan. So he arrested Sikonowski on dubious charges and thus made him ineligible to run for office. But his wife, Svetlana, took his place. And their supporters went around the cities of Belarus, getting people to chant, Stop the Cockroach. When a furious Lukashenko declared there'd be no Ukraine-style uprising in his country, that only spurred more public activity. I'm quoting from a piece from last week's The Week. And in the meantime, the election was held. And wouldn't you know it, Alexander Lukashenko got 80% of the vote. Lukashenko, who ruled the former Soviet country since 1994, has described opposition supporters as sheep, controlled from abroad. And anyway, Svetlana, who the BBC calls Miss Tikhanovskaya, got just 9.9% of the vote. When she attempted to register a complaint about the results, she was detained for seven hours. Shortly afterwards, Belarus's main opposition leader said she took a very difficult decision to leave the country. After the election, there had been clashes between protesters and police. This went on for several nights. There were numerous instances of police brutality reported. One demonstrator died. The BBC says that Ms. Tikhonovskaya then had an emotional video addressed to supporters in Russia, saying she overestimated her own strength. She said, I thought this campaign had really steeled me and given me so much strength that I could cope with anything. But I guess I'm still the same weak woman that I was. It's not clear whether she was persuaded to make this statement. She added, not one life is worth what is happening now. Children are the most important things in our lives. And then she fled to Lithuania. A second video then emerged, which appears to have been taken during her detention. The images show her head lowered, reading nervously from a script as she urges her supporters to obey the law and stay away from street protests. Her allies said the video, which has been published by state media, had been recorded under pressure. The activists in Belarus are convinced that uh, Ms. Tikhonovskaya was given a text to read under pressure, but she is apparently now safe in Lithuania with her children, which were sent to Lithuania before the election. As far as we know, the husband is still in jail. We hope the election will go forward in a fair manner come this November under extraordinary circumstances during a pandemic. One thing does seem pretty certain. Trump is going to mess with the males. I talked to a man last week who was describing how his wife states that things are clearly being messed with at the U.S. Postal Service. Things are being moved around in such a way as that it comes in waves. I mean, like clogged up waves. Things are just overwhelmed, like, like Christmas. Even though we're in the middle of the summer, and there's no reason for that to be happening. Is this a dry run? for uh, messing with our elections via the U.S. Postal Service? Well, we would say you can bet your ass that it is. And if we can get someone that'll come forward to talk to us directly, believe you me, we're going to put them on. You may have gotten a, I guess, I guess, I guess you, maybe you got a laugh over the fact that Republican operatives have been caught in four different states taking the necessary steps to get Kanye West onto the ballots. Now, I'm really hard-pressed to rub two facts together about Kanye West, except that, you know, I know that he's Mr. Kim Kardashian and that he's some kind of rapper. That's it. That's all I know. Well, one more thing. He does feel that he should be president of the United States. 
And of course, when you look at the guy that is president of the United States, you do have to pose the question, well, how much worse could we do? And then we have this report from The Week magazine. Kanye West publicly apologized last week, this would be two weeks ago now, to his wife, Kim Kardashian, after claiming she tried to bring a doctor to his Wyoming ranch to lock me up in a psychiatric hospital. West had had a meltdown at a rally for his presidential campaign in South Carolina the previous week, this is three weeks ago now, I guess, announcing that he and Kardashian had decided to abort their first daughter until God told him not to. A sobbing West apparently screamed into a microphone, I almost killed my daughter. Did you see this, Mr. McMillan? I saw parts of it, not that part. Hmm. Was it kind of like it sounds? Exactly like it sounds. Hmm. A distraught Kardashian said in a statement that Kanye has bipolar disorder, adding that dealing with mental illness is incredibly complicated and painful, and requested privacy for her brilliant but complicated husband. Well, we have a feeling that uh, privacy is not going to come his way on the campaign trail. And he did briefly seek medical care at a local hospital. In the apology that he made, Kanye said he was wrong to air a private matter and said to Kardashian, thank you for always being there for me. I don't know where they've gotten him officially on those ballots in four states, but I just have a suspicion that when Republicans come forward to put a guy like Kanye West on the ballot, they're trying to drain away black votes from Joe Biden. That's just my suspicion. And oh my goodness, we did not mention up till now that uh, the waiting is over and that Joe Biden has chosen Kamala Harris as his vice presidential pick. It's sort of a funny thing about American politics that there's this this thought that, you know, this immense uh, and complicated uh, set of procedures is gone through to choose someone to run at the top of the ticket of one of the two major parties. And of course, a lot of other major parties to make it look like this is a real bona fide democracy. This might be an excellent time to throw in a little Winston Churchill who did note at one point that democracy was the worst form of government except for all of the other choices that have been tried. To say that ours is flawed is is a bit of an understatement. But as Donald Trump might say, it is what it is. One of the things about the process that always struck me as just most crazy was that, yeah, a guy goes forward or a gal and says, I want to be president, and they make speeches, and they talk about position papers, and they posture here, and they buy ads there, and they cut deals in back rooms, yada, yada, yada. And throughout of all of this complex Rube Goldberg machinery emerges a man or a woman to head one of the two tickets that will actually elect a president, Democratic Party or Republican Party. But then along the way, that pick or a combination of that pick and those close to him reaches out and snags somebody to become the choice for vice president. On my bookshelf, I have a really excellent book uh, about the the vice presidency. I really liked its title, Crapshoot, because man, isn't that what it is? And if you look back through American history and note that 44 men have been president, and yes, Trump is 45, but that's because they count Grover Cleveland twice. He's considered our 22nd and 24th presidents. But out of those 44 guys, the vice president features pretty prominently into who becomes president on no less than nine occasions. The vice president ascended to the presidency upon the death of the president, or, well, I'm sorry, on eight occasions in the death of the president, in one case because the president resigned, Richard Nixon. 
pretty sad to note that on the four of those cases, the president was assassinated. And by my reckoning, on five of those times when the vice president made it to president, he then ran for the presidency on his own, and four times won. The only guy who didn't make it was Jerry Ford. And on three other occasions, the man who had been vice president under the president did not assume the presidency, but ran on his own after his president's term expired. And uh, two out of three times, that guy made it. Martin Van Buren followed Andrew Jackson. Bush 41 followed Ronald Reagan. But Al Gore did not follow Bill Clinton. So this is an awful lot of vice president, you know, figuring into the electoral process being the president. And in pretty much every case up till now, that vice president was put onto the ticket to, quote, balance it. It's a crazy theory in national politics that you know, if you're, say, a, a conservative Republican from Arizona, Barry Goldwater, you're going to look to balance the ticket for the vice presidency by grabbing a kind of a moderate guy from back east, in this case, Congressman William Miller from New York. William Miller is not a name very well known to the public because, you know, Goldwater got trounced. But Joe Biden is certainly, uh, certainly balancing the ticket, as it were, by going for Kamala Harris. In this case, it's not being balanced in terms of political outlook, you know, moderate or, or, uh, or, or more extreme, uh, so much as the fact that Biden is looking for a woman. It was felt, and it was felt that it wouldn't hurt if she was a minority woman. And if I dare say so, in the case of Kamala Harris, he's got a threefer. She is a woman, no doubt about that. She is of Indian extraction through her mother and has African ancestry through her Jamaican father. It's also felt that she might appeal to the law and order crowd, being that she was California's attorney general, and before that was the city attorney, I guess it was, for San Francisco. You remember, I remember the day in 2010 when she won that election for California attorney general. It was a squeaker. She had a much easier time getting elected to the Senate, because in the meantime, California has moved in the blue direction, it's fair to say. No sooner was she picked by Joe Biden, and the news got out that Donald Trump stepped in to call her nasty. Well, apparently she was pretty nasty when she was uh, grilling William Barr before he uh, was vetted to be the attorney general. I wish she'd been even harder on him now that we look back at it. I did hear a clip on NPR that had to make, that, I did hear a clip on NPR that made me laugh. Kamala Harris was asking William Barr if he'd been asked to open up any investigations by the president which point he sort of fumbled at hemmed and hawed and said, uh, what was the question again? She apparently didn't give Brent Kavanaugh too much of a pass uh, in his uh, Senate confirmation, which, uh, again, seems fair to us. And, you know, as we're looking at elections, and I guess we are in this segment, we should know that the political websites are increasingly looking as if something that seemed quite unlikely, say, nine months ago, is now looking like a distinct possibility. That would be... The Democrats taking the U.S. Senate. Of course, when we say take the Senate, that means you have 51 senators who are of the Democratic Party. Because in our flawed Democratic system, having that even one-vote majority means everything. And by the way, this might be a good time just to toss out the fact that we wish Ruth Bader Ginsburg good health for the next at least half a year. Well, we, we wish her good health, just period. But, you know, it's really important she stay healthy for the next half a year. Because if, God forbid, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passes away, Mitch McConnell has vowed to slam another 
Federalist Society choice vetted by Donald Trump into the Supreme Court of the United States. Since I've been sitting on a couple of lengthy, detailed articles about what Jane Mayer and the New Yorker called the enabler-in-chief, we should talk a little bit about Mr. Mitch McConnell. Boy, actually, my first piece from Robert Schlesinger from NBC News goes back to May of last year. Jane Mayer's terrific piece appeared in The New Yorker on the April 20th issue. Let's go back 15 months and excerpt a little bit from what Robert Schlesinger had to say in his opinion piece to NBC News, which was that Mitch McConnell has done far more to destroy Democratic norms than Donald Trump. Well, I have to pause (laughs) right there and say, well, that's before Donald Trump floated the idea about, you know, postponing the election. Nevertheless... Said Schlesinger, no one should be surprised that Mitch McConnell has promised that any potential 2020 Trump Supreme Court nominee would not get the Merrick Garland treatment, i.e. be held up until after the presidential race is decided. While McConnell and his Republican colleagues have tried to frame their 2016 obstructionism on Garland's nomination and prospective 2020 decision in various forms of Senate tradition, But he has, in this instance, been more than normally forthright. Supreme Court nominations are all about partisan politics, nothing more, nothing less. In that, McConnell is the living, breathing, calculating face of everything that is wrong with our current politics. To the extent to which our system has been dysfunctional, McConnell is the single chief architect of that sclerosis. President Donald Trump is a dangerous, blundering wrecking ball. But McConnell was undermining the system well before and is likely to outlast him. Nothing exemplifies McConnell's role as a norm-wrecking partisan warrior than the Garland affair. Almost as soon as the word of Antonin Scalia's death emerged, McConnell had promised to block anyone Barack Obama might nominate. The pious, pompous McConnell said then, the American people should have a voice in the selection of their next Supreme Court justice, noting that Obama was at that time a lame duck president. But the American people had had a voice in the selection when they elected Obama less than four years earlier to serve as president. The Senate hadn't confirmed an election year high court nominee for the better part of a century, said McConnell, ignoring the fact that the last time such a circumstance had arisen was more than a century earlier. And when it happened, the Senate did both vote and voted to confirm. So when he was asked in May of last year about a hypothetical 2020 Supreme Court nomination, McConnell said, oh, we'll fill it. Now, in 2016, when Barack Obama, a Democrat, nominated Merrick Garland for the Supreme Court, the Senate was controlled by Republicans with Mitch McConnell at the head. When that happened in 1888 under President Grover Cleveland, a Democrat, and by the way, trivia buffs will note that was Grover Cleveland, the 22nd president. Grover Cleveland, the 24th president, was elected in 1892. Anyway, when the 22nd president, Grover Cleveland, nominated Melville Fuller, the Republican-controlled Senate confirmed him overwhelmingly. Chris Robert Schlesinger notes that Fuller, a Democrat who had managed Stephen Douglas's losing presidential campaign in 1860, but avoided military service during the Civil War, went on to preside over a court that upheld the South's Jim Crow laws in Plessy v. Ferguson, threw out federal income tax law, a ruling rebuked by no less than the 16th Amendment, and made antitrust cases harder to prosecute. Said Schlesinger, Merrick Garland would have done considerably better. Jane Mayer's piece is much longer, and 
is, as all Jane Mayer pieces, a combination of meticulous research and excellent writing, but there's so much of it, I don't know what to quote from. Well, here's a few paragraphs that are pretty irresistible. Jane Mayer describes sitting down with John Yarmuth, a Democratic congressman from Louisville, Kentucky, who has known Mitch McConnell for 50 years. She asked if McConnell had once been idealistic. Said Yarmuth, nah, I never saw any evidence of that. that. He was just driven to be powerful. Said Mayor Yarmuth, who began as a Republican and worked in a statewide campaign alongside McConnell in 1968, said that McConnell had readily adapted to the Republican Party's rightward march. He never had any core principles. He just wants to be something. He doesn't want to do anything. Said Mayor, for months I searched for the larger principles or sense of purpose that animates Mitch McConnell. I traveled twice to Kentucky, observed him at a Trump rally in Lexington, and watched him preside over the impeachment trial in Washington. I interviewed dozens of people, some of whom love him and some of whom despise him. I read his autobiography, his speeches, and what others have written about him. Finally, someone who knows him very well told me, Give up. You can look and look for something more in him, but it isn't there. I wish I could tell you that there's some secret thing that he really believes in, but he doesn't. When Mayer looked into uh, the phase in his life when he was a junior senator of little importance, she wrote, As a backbench senator, McConnell used his fundraising talents to rise in the party's leadership, a path laid out by Lyndon Johnson. Robert Cairo, the author of a magisterial four-volume biography of Johnson, told me that in a stroke of genius, Johnson, as a Democratic junior congressman, realizes he has no power, but he has something no other congressman has, the oil men and big contractors in Texas who need favors in Washington. By establishing control of distribution of the donor's money, Johnson acquired immense power over his peers. And wouldn't you know it, Mitch McConnell has a lot of money from the coal industry. The way McConnell ended up making his name was decidedly unglamorous, blocking campaign finance reform. Even he derided the subject as rivaling static cling as an issue most Americans care about. Dull as campaign financing was, it was vitally important to his peers and to democracy. Few members wanted to risk appearing corrupt, so they were grateful to McConnell for fighting one reform after the next, while claiming it was purely about defending the First Amendment. According to one author, Behind Closed Doors, McConnell admitted to his Senate colleagues that undoing the reforms was, quote, in the best interest of the Republicans. Armed with funding from such billionaire conservatives as the DeVos family, oh, like Betsy DeVos, our current present-day Secretary of Education, McConnell helped take the quest to kill restraints on spending all the way up to the Supreme Court. In 2010, his side won. The Citizens United decision opened the way for corporations, big donors, and secretive nonprofits to pour unlimited and often untraceable cash into elections, which, believe you me, is an issue here in 2020. I can't understand how it is conservatives imagine in their minds that corporations have First Amendment rights of free speech, while at the same time contending that, you know, corporations shouldn't have to pay taxes. Oh, and speaking of taxes, the president uh, declared a few days ago he was going to eliminate payroll taxes. Since payroll taxes include your Social Security contribution, Donald Trump is proposing to defund Social Security. That's something I think more people ought to be talking about, don't you? 
Anyway, we only have time for a couple more quotes out of Jane Meyer, which I, which I think I will use to close the show. She said, influence peddling has grown from a grubby, shameful business into a multi-billion dollar high-paying industry. Mitch McConnell has led the way in empowering those private interests and in aligning the Republican Party with them. His staff embodied the revolving door as they went from working for one of America's poorest states to lobbying for America's richest corporations while growing rich themselves and helping fund McConnell's campaigns. Money from the coal industry, tobacco companies, Big Pharma, Wall Street, the Chamber of Commerce, and many other interests flowed into Republican coffers while McConnell blocked federal actions that those interests opposed. Climate change legislation, affordable health care, gun control, and efforts to curb economic inequality. Said Robert Cairo, Mitch McConnell and LBJ are very similar. They both use the rules and procedures of the Senate with great deafness. But in a more significant way, they couldn't be more diametrically opposite. Johnson, for all his faults in his later years, used the rules and procedures to turn the Senate into a force to create social justice. Mitch McConnell has used them to block it. Anyway, the Democratic Party found me to send me a flyer talking about how they can uh, flip, flip for and ditch Mitch come November. In addition to Mitch McConnell, the Democrats have Lindsey Graham in the crosshairs. Personally, I'll be surprised if either man is removed from the Senate, but, um, you know, hope springs eternal. It appears we've done it again and used up another hour of, of our time and your time. We hope you found it worthwhile. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. In the weeks to come, we're going to keep pounding away. We've got to keep talking about this stuff. I'm not exactly saying we need to stop the cockroach. But as the body count keeps rising higher and higher and there is no plan coming out of the federal government, we've got to do something about you-know-who. We'll see you next week.